listening to the Drawing the Ideal Self podcast for June 2023. So today's episode is going to look at a bit of theory taken from a book by Richard Butler. And we're going to look at the properties of constructs. The reason I've picked this out is it's a very nice description of what a construct is and an explanation of what it can do and how we might use them. The part I'm going to use is taken from the very first chapter, which is called Coming to Terms with Personal Construct Theory. Richard Butler is the editor of the book and it includes a lot of interesting papers, so it's quite a good buy actually. The section is called The Properties of Constructs. And he says that Kelly wished to distinguish between a construct and a concept. The latter he saw as existing independently of any particular person's psychological processes. A construct, he proposed, is a different thing. He goes on to talk about what a construct is. Uh, and I'm going to take each little bit and talk a bit about them. So firstly, he says that Kelly proposed that a construct may be viewed as an abstraction arising from an awareness of a similarity and a contrast between events, elements or objects, summarised in the construction corollary, which suggests that a person anticipates events by construing their replications. I was thinking today about maybe one day doing a podcast on the construing of animals of how animals construe us really because I was looking at my dog who I think has trained me to throw a ball for him rather than I've trained him to bring a ball back to me uh, and I was looking at the cat and the cat has certainly trained me to move my stuff to one side so that he can get on my knee and he's also developed a tendency to scratch the side of the settee to tell me that he wants to go out and I was thinking that it'd be interesting if you could actually look at what an animal's constructs were or what range of constructs you think they might have. So any of you who have pets, have a think about that uh, and notice that your animals are construing as well. Obviously, some animals construe better than others and some we can understand better than others. I follow somebody on Facebook. I don't really know how it came to, but I do. Uh, and it's about dog training, South End Dog Training, I think it's called. And that shows um, really the training of animals by the training of people. So the people are trained how to manage their dogs in a different way. And then the dogs just follow along. But it was the replication of events that made me think a lot about animals and their construing. So my dog definitely brings the ball back until I get tired of throwing it. Or he can't walk anymore. Either of those could happen. Uh, I don't do it until he can't walk anymore because I know from experience that he just does not necessarily stop when it's good for him. The replication of me throwing is what he's able to construe, that this is a time we're going to be playing with the ball. He also knows that if I take out the ball thrower, we're going to be playing with the ball. So when you're thinking about how constructs develop, you know, what the dog is doing and what we try to do is to anticipate what's coming by construing replications. So it's much harder to construe something the first time you come across it. You then have to think a bit harder and to work out what it is like and what it is not similar to. When it's something that you've seen before, 
you can go into, okay, is that the same as it was before? And I'm sure my dog thinks, okay, we're at the same field. I think the ball's coming next. And he anticipates the events very, very well. Okay, the next thing he says is a construct is devised by the protagonist with no existence independent of the person whose thinking it characterises. Hence the description between a construct and a concept, the latter often being treated as existing independently of any one person's psychological processes. So a construct is about a person's processes. A concept is a kind of agreed definition of something. So it might be the concept of global warming. You know, there's an agreed definition of global warming and that can apply uh, and someone can examine that. But a person's construing is very different and it is utterly theirs. The next thing he talks about is that constructs are bipolar. He says the relationship between the two poles of a construct is considered to be one of contrast, defined in terms of the dichotomy corollary. A person's construction system is composed of a finite number of dichotomous constructs. Thus, lazy may be contrasted to hardworking. It is through such discriminations that Kelly suggested a person derives meaning. So there are going to be two poles for a construct because we're making a discrimination in order to use our constructs. So in order to say something is A, we're also implying that it's not other things. And that might be an obvious it's A rather than B, or there might be it's A rather than a multitude of B, C, D, E, F, G. As we get more precise with our construing, we'll be able to say, OK, it's in contrast to something very particular. So uh, an artist might develop constructs around colours that are very different from somebody else's. So they might construe something as, say, turquoise, when someone who's not an artist might say they're blue. And that turquoise might be in contrast to another colour of similar nature, a sort of bluey green that has a name that the artist knows that other people would not understand or connect with. So we'll make constructs that fit our own use and so that they're useful to us. And the same would happen with something like parts of engines. You know, there's a, there's a difference between what people need as parts of engines. If you're a mechanic, you need to know all the parts of the engines, including all the little bits that make the engine. If you're somebody like me, all you need to know is there's an engine in that bonnet and engine will do for it because I have no idea what the other bits do and I couldn't be bothered to understand them. OK, the next thing he says is that constructs can be described as having an emergent pole, which is the pole that arises when an individual elicits a construct. Thus, if actor characterise themselves in three ways, a person's self-description of loud, unconventional and creative can be seen as emergent ends of three constructs. I've talked before about the importance of finding the contrast pole. Until you know what the contrast pole is, you can't be sure of what you're dealing with. He goes on to express that, saying, necessarily having a contrast or implicit pole, which describes the contrast end of a construct. Thus, boring might be differentiated from unconventional. So the emergent pole is a thing that people will say straight away. So if you said, 
uh, what kind of chocolate do you like? They might say Cadbury's Dairy Milk or Twix. You would have to say to them, OK, as opposed to and ask them for their contrast poll. And for me, that might be as opposed to crunchy. And if you ask me what that was about, I would be able to tell you that it's something about the texture of the chocolate. It's also something about the slightly bitter taste in the crunchy, I think. The next thing he talks about is that constructs are a portable axis of reference. Constructs are discriminations imposed on events and as such are successively picked up and laid down over many different events in order to bring them into focus and clothe them with personal meanings. Kelly, 1958-1969. Thus, Huddersfield, a geographical element, may be construed as either north or south, depending on whether we are respectively in Bristol or in Venice. So our constructs will be made to be as useful as possible and we can apply them to new situations. As we go through life, we will have to develop some that are more useful than others and they will depend on our experiences. So, for instance, um, a child of 10 who's never been ill, when people say, how are you today? Are you well? They can say, yes, I am. Uh, I feel fine. That's a very different kind of fine to somebody who, uh, say, has a serious illness and a person is asking them how they are. So even though they both people may say fine, it's fine compared with what? And that's the axis of reference that they're using. So fine compared with you know, feeling absolutely dreadful and in a lot of pain is a very different kind of answer to the 10-year-old's fine, I'm okay, I'm not ill, so I must be fine. And we will apply our constructs across situations until we find them wanting and then we will refine them or make new ones. So it's a constantly evolving system. He also says that constructs can be seen as possibly having verbal markers, though constructs are foremost the discriminations we make, not the labels we attach to them. Kelly referred to unlabeled constructs as pre-verbal, possibly emerging before a child has a command of speech and which continue to be employed even though the individual has no consistent word symbol. Fifth Burr, 2006, has wonderfully elaborated how our artistic style, gait, handwriting, gestures, posture, dance, and so forth, express our identity without recourse to symbols or language. To me, the most important thing there is that very first bit. Constructs are foremost the discriminations we make, not the labels we attach to them. Because the labels we attach to them will depend upon our command of language. And for some people, they can't use language as well. Doesn't mean they don't make those discriminations, though. So when you're thinking about what a person's constructs are, you've got to be very conscious of that. And you also need to have some ways of eliciting constructs and finding out about them that don't rely totally on the person's use of language. The other thing that he said that is very important is some of those constructs will have developed before the person had language. So in order to tell you what they are, they've got to first of all convert them into a form that might not be usual for that construct or that it makes the construct seem a bit um, wishy-washy or vague. Uh, and I always think a great example is the word love. 
because actually it's very hard to define what it is and hopefully we all experienced it very, very early in life before we had any language to tell other people what it was. Okay, next he says constructs are arising out of an individual's personal experience and therefore regarded as fundamentally their own. Kelly's individuality corollary, which states that persons differ from each other in their constructions of events, stresses the uniqueness of each person's construing, even where they may attach similar verbal labels to their discriminations. Two employees may both construe their boss as generous, yet their contrasts, tight-fisted and selfish, suggests that each construes, understands him in different ways. It's very easy to illustrate this in any kind of uh, session that you might do with people because you can just take an emergent poll and ask people for their contrasts and you will find that they will have different contrasts. Often people take a very common construct in order to illustrate this. So you might have something like angry and find out what people contrast with angry. And some people might say calm, someone else might say furious, uh, because they're thinking of anger as somewhere different along that dimension between calm and furious. He also says constructs are phenomenologically valid, in that even where a person takes another person's verbal mark as, as a basis for a construct, such as with a supplied construct, they will invest it with their own personal meanings. So it doesn't matter what word you give to people, they will construe that themselves. So, you know, one of the things that we have to do in organisations is have really, really clear definitions of what things are uh, so that we can be very clear what we're talking about. I mean, I often work doing assessments for autism. The way autism is construed has changed over time. Each time it changes, you know, there is another list of these are in, these are out. Here are the symptoms. If you've got other symptoms, we're not concerned with those. These are the key things that make autism. So what people are trying to do there is have some commonality with the construing and make sure that somehow that standard is fixed. However, it doesn't work perfectly because it may say an impairment in communication. And if I'm doing that assessment, my idea of impairment in communication won't be quite the same as the next person and the next person and the next person. And some of that may be about my expectations for myself, my expectations for other people, the age of the child, the situation we're in, all sorts of things. But my construing is my construing, even though I'm working from the same starting point that we're looking at communication. And finally, Butler says a construct is a means of simultaneously promoting an understanding of events by bringing them within our grasp through one set of terms, whilst also restricting other meanings by blinding us to other aspects of the same configuration of events. Thus, if we determinedly construe a pile of bricks as building material, we limit the possibility of construing them in artistic terms. And if you can remember when the artist Tracy Emin made a bedroom, it was her bed, and relating to all the people that she'd ever slept with uh, and the situation she'd been in, 
when that was displayed at the Tate, people objected to it. They said that can't be art. It, it's a load of rubbish. It's just somebody's bedroom. Um, but what she was doing was construing things in a different way. She was thinking of the stories that were represented by that bed and by the stuff that was in it and around it and the mess and all that sort of thing. So the bed was not only a place to sleep. It was also a, a, an illustration of a life. It is important to remember that when we say something is something, we're also saying it's not something else. So we're, we're limiting where we're looking and we're, we've made a selection of which constructs will work best for us in that situation. So when we're in situations where we're wanting to elicit constructs, what we're looking for is the way a person views the world and their experiences and the ways they have learned work for them. So it's not a random thing that we're eliciting from them. It's likely that whatever they say in answer to a question that we give them has meaning. And sometimes we need to take a bit of time to explore that meaning and see what is really important about it. I think Tom Ravenet's work is very nice for this. So he's got lots of ideas about how you can explore that sort of thing with a child. To be honest, you can use them with anybody. So I would recommend you have a look at that. I will put the reference in for Butler as well. But if you remember one thing, it's that constructs are discriminations because that immediately implies that there's going to be two poles and they are also personal. So they're personal discriminations. That's what personal construing is. And we remember that any individual can have a very wacky and unique way of looking at things. And that's OK. And that's one of the things that I think is fantastic about PCP. It's not about putting people into situations where they're going to be right or wrong with the way they construe. But what we're understanding is that it's important to explore the way they construe if we want to understand that person. So I'm thinking that you're going to maybe if you're in the UK, you're probably going to be having some holiday soon and I hope you have a lovely time. Uh, I'm going to be in my garden quite a bit, I hope, and things are growing well, so that's good. I'm certainly learning to construe plants, which I had no, well, very few constructs about in the past. And I'm getting better at it, which is a good thing. OK, I will see you again at the end of July. Have a great month. Bye. <laughs>